Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. As we continue our study of Matthew's Gospel, this morning we come to chapter 14. So let's read together. We'll read the whole chapter from verse 1 through verse 36. This is the Word of God. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude, because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. 
And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region and brought to him all who were sick and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Let us pray. God and Father, we pray that you would bless your word to us. Open your word to us. Unfold it to us. Let us see its richness and its beauty, and to see therein the richness and the beauty of Christ, and also the special place that He has given us as His disciples, as your children, and the special calling we have, and the special way that Christ is with us. And we pray all of these things to your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. When we get to Matthew's gospel, to the end of it, he is going to conclude it with Jesus' notice to the disciples that he has received all authority, both in heaven and on earth. And he's going to give them a command for them to make disciples of all the nations and to bring them to not only own and take the triune name upon them, but also to be obedient to all his commandments. Now, this was be a very daunting project. When you looked at the disciples, a small group, who were they to take on the world? Who were they to think that they could bring the nations to faith? Who were they to think that they could bring the nations to glad obedience to Jesus Christ? But then Jesus adds this all-important promise. I will be with you always. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That and that alone is what would make it not only possible, but inevitable that disciples of Jesus Christ would carry out this impossible mission. And as the apostles went forward, we know that even in their own lifetimes, as we read about it in the book of Acts and in the epistles of the New Testament, we know that they encountered misunderstanding, misperception, persecution from powers and authorities. They encountered stubbornness and obduracy and unbelief from the covenant people of God. And they often dealt with faltering faith among the disciples themselves. And imagine that in the midst of all that, of all that they went through, as recorded in the New Testament, that the apostles often thought back about the events of our text, where Jesus, in the midst of all these kinds of very, the same, very same kind of obstacles that they would face, showed the power and showed the love necessary for him to be with them, for him to pray for them, for Him to provide for them, 
for him to protect them and to carry his church in this way forward and to carry his kingdom forward over all obstacles, all forces, and all opposition. And in doing so, Jesus revealed himself to be the Son of God. He revealed what it means to be the Son of God. How he is truly Emmanuel, God with us. Always with his disciples. To pray for them. To provide for them. And to protect them. And give them victory over all circumstances. And in these events, Jesus provided a preview of how he would be with his people down through the centuries. How his people were to respond to him in every generation. And how Jesus would ensure that his church and his kingdom will prevail against all odds. So there are some very important lessons here for the church in every generation And certainly there are important lessons here for the church in our generation. So let's give careful attention. Well, we've already seen as we've considered Matthew that that the oceans or the seas are often used in the Old Testament typology as a picture of the pagan nations. And so the stormy seas are often used in the Old Testament as a picture not only of pagan nations but of the dark pagan powers that operate behind them. We're talking about Satan and his legions and how they manipulate and operate behind the pagan powers. In Isaiah chapter 57, for example, it says, The wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. The sea is dark and is dangerous and is deep. And there's all kinds of stuff in it. There's sea monsters that are down in there. There are predators down in there. And there's all kinds of stuff in the sea that it casts up. And so Isaiah says the wicked, that's what they're like. They're like the sea. In Isaiah 17, God says, Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away. This calls to mind the two instances we have in Matthew where Jesus calms the sea and the winds. It says in Revelation chapter 17, The waters which you saw, speaking to John here in the vision, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And then finally in Isaiah 60, in a very hopeful messianic passage, talking about the victory of God's kingdom through Christ, it says, The darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will rise up over you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And what will be the result of the Lord arising over His people and His glory being seen upon His people? The Gentiles shall come to your light. And then he goes on to say, Your heart shall swell with joy because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you and the wealth of the Gentiles will come to you. So again and again we have in the Old Testament, God's people are pictured as being people of the land. 
They're civilized people. They're, they're on the land. They dwell in safety. They, they dwell where people are supposed to dwell. They don't dwell in the deep, dark sea like the pagan uh, people do. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, uh, rulers are pictured like great sea monsters, and then the peoples of the nations are pictured like schools of fish. You've seen schools of fish. They, they all swim together. They're you teeming fish and so forth. They, they're chaotic. They don't really know what they're doing or where they're going, and they dart here and there and so forth. And that's the way the pagan nations are pictured. And the whole theme of sea and fishing and the disciples as fishers of men is a very prevalent theme in the Gospels. And that's very unusual compared to the Old Testament, where you have very little connection between God's people and the sea. Again, God's people are the people of the land in the Old Testament. But, so it jumps out if you have this Old Testament background and then you come to the New Testament and suddenly there's all this discussion about the sea, the Sea of Galilee, of light coming on the Gentiles there around the Sea of Galilee, of Jesus, uh, his, a number of his disciples are fishermen and they fish on the sea and he tells them he's going to make them fishers of men. Then all of a sudden there's all this emphasis about the sea and fishing and so forth. And what that's, it's, it's presaging the fact that the gospel and the kingdom of God is about to break out and is about to go out and cover the earth so that one day it is the knowledge of the Lord that will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So we see that this picture of a stormy sea is a very well-known picture in the Bible of the pagan powers and and behind the peoples the dark satanic powers that operate there now since very early in church history we know that the that the boat that the disciples are in was viewed as a picture of the christian church now notice the emphasis on the boat not just the disciples but on the boat and not just a boat but the boat in this passage in verse 22, we're told that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. In verse 24, it is the boat that is in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves. It doesn't say the disciples, it says the boat. In verse 29, it is the boat that Peter gets out of when he goes to walk on the water to come to Jesus. In verse 32, it is the boat that Jesus gets into and immediately the wind ceases and all is calm. And in verse 33, it's those who are in the boat who come and worship Jesus saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And so there's all this emphasis on the boat. And you have to remember that in the Bible, there are no insignificant details. If something is mentioned, some kind of an extraneous detail, apparently, in some passage, it's there for a reason. God doesn't throw away words and phrases. And one of the ways that the Hebrews uh, in their literature would call attention to things is by taking some detail and mentioning it again and again and again. And that's what we see in this passage with the boat, 
the boat, the boat. All of this emphasis on the boat. And so we have our attention drawn to that. And like I said, I think it is legitimate that the church down through church history has seen this as a picture of the Christian church. So Jesus, by making the disciples get into the boat and then sending them out into the boat on the stormy seas, I think is a picture of the Great Commission. Sending the disciples out, sending the church out to disciple the nations. And so was Matthew 8. You remember, this is not the first time in Matthew that the disciples have been out in a boat on the stormy seas. And it's not the first time that Jesus has calmed the sea. In fact, these two episodes with the disciples being out on a stormy sea and Jesus calming the sea, these two episodes bracket this entire portion of Matthew from the middle of chapter 8 all the way to the end of chapter 14. And the two episodes have many parallels. Both times there are stormy seas. One, on this occasion, it's almost impossible for the disciples to make any headway against the wind and the waves, and they're stuck out in the middle of the sea. On the first occasion, the boat almost sank, the waves were so high. On both occasions, we're told about the disciples being fearful. On both occasions, Jesus did not seem to be with them. The first time, he was there, but he was asleep. The second time, he's not there at all. He's not even in the boat till he comes walking on the water. Both times, Jesus tells them not to be afraid. And he calls them, uh, you of little faith. And so we we have these echoes here in the words that Jesus said. It's echoing both what he's going to say in the Great Commission, that he's going to be with them always. And we also have echoes from the Old Testament, from Joshua, where God commands Joshua, and by extension the people, to not be afraid, do not be dismayed, be strong, be courageous, for I am with you. Both times Jesus shows his complete sovereignty over the wind and the waves. They obey him. The first times the disciples respond by saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? So the question is raised the first time when they see him calm the wind and the waves. They say, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? The second times the disciples give the answer and they confess the answer. You see how Jesus has brought them to the knowledge of this truth. Truly, you are the son of God and they worship him. And in between these two episodes on the sea, we have Jesus progressively revealing himself to be the Son of God, both through his mighty works, through his preaching, and his great wisdom. And we also see Jesus giving the disciples a taste of what the stormy seas of the nations will be like. The disciples see all kinds of responses to Jesus. Jesus is not a normal preacher. Jesus has no flaws which anybody legitimately can point out and say, well, they've got this problem and that problem, and there's this problem with this sermon, and there's that problem with this and that, you know, whatever. That can't be said about Jesus. He is God in the flesh. 
He is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited king. He has come. The kingdom finally is here. And yet what the disciples see is even among God's covenant people, they see very disturbing reactions to Jesus. They see people, they see nonchalance. They see envy toward him. They see resentfulness toward him. They see very disturbing opposition and hostility toward him. And we haven't even gotten outside the covenant people yet. What's it going to be like when they're really out on the stormy seas of the nations? And we have Jesus in the middle talking to them about the kingdom. Teaching them about how the kingdom is going to succeed. How it is going to conquer. But it's going to do so in the midst of chaos and confusion and opposition and hardship and persecution. Now, in this particular passage, there are actually two stormy seas involved. The second one, when the disciples are in the boat, that's obvious. But the first stormy sea we see in this passage is when Herod imprisons and kills John the Baptist. This is what stormy seas look like up close and personal when the waves really get up. It looks like powerful people, rulers and authorities imprisoning God's people, persecuting the gospel, putting God's people to death. That's what stormy seas look like in real life when the waves really get up. Now, this is the third Herod to appear in Matthew's gospel. This is Herod Antipas, who is the Tetrarch. All three Herods have presented a threat to Jesus, a threat to the gospel, and a threat to the kingdom of God. Herod the Great was the one who killed the infant boys in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill Jesus. Herod's son, Archelaus who reigned over Judea after his father's death, is the one God warned Joseph about and caused him to turn aside and settle in Galilee instead of returning to his native Judea. And now, another son of Herod, Herod Antipas, who is tetrarch of Jesus' home district of Galilee and also of a separate uh, district called Perea, from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D., in other words, during the entire life of Jesus, he's the Tetrarch of Galilee, he, another Herod, presents a threat to Jesus and to the gospel and to the kingdom. Now, Herod Antipas was not a blood Jew. His father, Herod the Great, who was one of the, the wickedest, most paranoid pieces of work ever to arise to power in this world, there was, uh, by uh, popular account, there was only one person in all of his life that Herod the Great ever loved. That was his first wife, and he murdered her out of his paranoia and fear uh, for competition over power. So Herod the Great was an Idumean. That means he's a descendant of Esau. And his mother, the mother, his, his wife, the mother of Herod Antipas, was a Samaritan. And what caused John to preach out against Herod, Herod Antipas here, 
is the fact that he married his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, and used two divorces to clear the way. You think that Henry VIII is the first one who used divorce to get what he wanted and put pressure on the church. Not so. So Herod divorced his first wife, the daughter of the king of Petra, and Herodias herself repudiated her husband, who was uh, Antipas's brother, Philip. And all of this, of course, was forbidden under God's law. And so John publicly condemned it, no doubt, in his preaching. Now, John was very popular with the people, and Herod and Herodias perceived him as a political threat, fearing that he was fomenting some kind of a messianic movement, in, in other words, an opposition political movement. So Herod had John arrested and imprisoned, and John would have died quickly, but for the fear, the political fear of the multitudes. We've had some indications that Herod would have been content to keep John in prison, but there is no doubt that Herodias wanted him dead, and she skillfully maneuvers Herod into a position where he will lose face before his political peers unless he beheads John. And so Herod has John beheaded. And now Herod perceives Jesus as a threat, a similar threat. In fact, he says he is John risen from the dead, and that's why he has these powers operating within him. Now, this is not faith. Don't mistake this for faith. This is paranoia coupled with superstition. He knows he has wrongfully killed John, and he thinks somehow now the specter of John has risen up to haunt him. John himself, you remember, performed no miracles. He was the greater Elijah who was to come, and yet, very much unlike Elijah, he did not perform any miracles. He was a preacher. But all the power that God showed in Elijah was placed into the words and into the mouth and the preaching of John the Baptist. So the fact that Jesus in our text here moves out of Herod's reach shows us that he, there was a real threat against Jesus. And it is not time. When it is time for the Son of God to die, he will set his face toward Jerusalem and he will walk right into the den of the dragon. But that is not that time now. So this is what stormy seas look like when the waves get really big. And you can see behind these great political powers, you know, we, people who are very powerful, people who are very wealthy. When you hear about people, you know, whether it's George Soros or, or other people who are billionaires and have billions of dollars, it's hard to imagine what their life is like. It seems like it's so disconnected from ours because they have so much money. And in this world, if you have money, you have power. If you have that kind of money, you have popularity. A lot of people want to be your friend. Politicians want to be your friends. You have all of this at your disposal. When you think about somebody like being president of the United States or the head of some other nation, and you think about the kind of power and the kind of circles that they move in, it seems to have very little disconnect, uh, connection with our lives. But you know, when you see them, when you get the backstory here, like we do with Herod, we see 
that all the pettinesses that we struggle with, all the pride, the pettiness, the paranoia, the, the infighting, the, all the things that we have to work on uh, to overcome in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And of course, unbelievers don't know anything about what it means to be sanctified out of those things. We see those things in full bloom for those who are wealthy and those who are in power. It acts like an amplifier to amplify the pride and the pettiness and the backbiting and the infighting and so forth. And what we see is that when you have it amplified that way, it is, it's very easy for Satan to manipulate those kind of people. He can manipulate Herod. You know, if Herod fears the multitudes. Politicians always fear the multitudes. They always want to manage and control the multitudes. They don't love the multitudes, but they do fear them. And so the, the multitudes need to be placated, they need to be managed, they need to be controlled so that at the proper time they show up in the voting booth and pull the right lever. We see Herodias, we see family relations here and all the intrigue that's going on within the family with Herodias and, and, and the daughter and so forth. All of this is determining policy in this Roman district. All of it is what is explaining this. Well, this is what stormy seas look like in real life. And so what, Jesus, what does Jesus then teach the disciples in this text? He teaches them what he will later promise them in the Great Commission, that he is with them always. That's what he's teaching them here. He is with them always. Always, with the implication being that he is going to give them the power to complete the humanly impossible mission that he has called them to. Jesus teaches his disciples that he's always going to be with them in three ways. First of all, that he will always be with them to pray for them. We have in verse 13 and verse 23, Jesus going off by himself. Now, verse 23 tells us expressly that he went off to pray. Verse 13 doesn't tell us that. But every time in the Gospels that we are told about Jesus going off by himself, when we are told what he is doing, it is always praying. And when Jesus prays, when we see his prayers, like we have in his great prayer in John chapter 17, when we have his, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, we know that there are two great passions that Jesus had in his prayers. The first one was for the glory of his Father. The glory of his Father. And he saw his own glory being connected to that. So as Jesus faced the cross, Jesus prayed to the Father. He said, Father, glorify yourself and glorify yourself in me. And Jesus saw himself being glorified in the cross. Because he knew that it was in the cross that he would become king of this God-forsaken world. This is when he would begin to bring his reign of righteousness, his transformation, his salvation to all peoples. And so he said to the Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. And the Father says that he will do so. So the glory of the Father is the first great passion that we see in the prayers of Jesus. That's the one great uh, guiding light 
that Jesus had. The second great passion we see in Jesus' prayers is for the blessing and the care of His disciples. We can see that so clearly in John chapter 17 as He prays that the glory He shared with the Father may be bestowed to the disciples. That the fellowship and the love that He shares and the union and the unity that He shares with the Father will be shared by the disciples. That the joy He knows and shares with the Father will be shared by the disciples. So the glory of His Father and the good of His disciples are the two great passions that we see in Jesus' prayers. We know that on one occasion, Jesus prayed for Peter. In fact, it's the occasion that Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. This very night, you're going to deny me three times. And He tells him, Satan has desired to sift you like weak Peter, but I have prayed for you. Now think about how personal this is. It's not just Jesus praying for the church in general, Jesus praying for the disciples in general, but Jesus prays for Peter. Jesus knows what's coming Peter's way, and he prays for Peter that his faith will not fail, and that when he has returned to Jesus, he will be in a position to strengthen his brethren. Think about how personal that is. And I think that's a picture of how Jesus prays for us. We're told in the New Testament that Jesus intercedes for us. And He doesn't just intercede for us in general. He intercedes for us personally by name. He knows what we're facing. And He lifts us up to the Father in prayer. The second thing that Jesus is teaching His disciples is how He is with them to provide for them. He is always with them to provide for them. Notice that the crowds follow Jesus out into a remote area. This is probably the desert up on a mountain. Now the desert is another Old Testament symbol or picture of God-forsaking lands, of, of places where there's no water, there's no life. Places where death reigns and everything is shriveled up and dried out. So the water and the food of life are absent. It was in the desert, remember, that Satan came to tempt Jesus. It was in the desert that Israel was tempted and tested for 40 years. So the crowds has followed Jesus out to where all the things of life are absent. There's no water, there's no food, they have no power to get them. And Jesus teaches the disciples in a very powerful way that even in God-forsaken lands where Satan and death hold sway, even in the valley of the shadow of death, He is still Lord. He is still the one with all power and authority, and He is with them to provide. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that it was Jesus pre-incarnate who was with Israel in the desert in the Old Testament. He was the rock who followed them. He's the one who provided them manna, bread from heaven. And He is the one who provided for them water from the rock. And now we see Jesus incarnate, Jesus in the flesh, doing the same thing. He provides for those who come to Him. And He does so miraculously. Jesus is Lord of the desert. And thirdly, we see Jesus teaching the disciples that He is always with them to protect them. He comes walking 
to them on the sea. Now, this is a very powerful picture because in the Old Testament, it is God alone who treads upon the sea and walks in the places of the deep. And here we see Jesus treading upon the sea. Here you've got this raging sea, and they're stuck out in the middle, and they can't make any headway. What's Jesus' relationship to this stormy sea? He walks on it, and it does what he tells it to do. So he's teaching them. He's always with them to protect them. Now, this does not mean that the disciples, that the church, remember the boat, will never be exposed to danger. Remember who sent them in the boat out into the sea. Jesus sent them out into this dangerous, stormy sea. And when Jesus sends us to the nations, He is sending us into danger and into peril. He is sending us into the world with lots of Herods, lots of Herodiases. And it doesn't mean that we won't ever be touched by the stormy sea. John was touched by the stormy sea. Jesus said, out of all the Old Testament prophets, there was none greater than John. Out of all the Old Testament prophets, he was the one who was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, who was sent to prepare the way for the King, the Messiah. And John was touched by the stormy sea, died in his early 30s. Jesus himself was touched by the stormy sea. He would be crucified like John. I mean, he would be crucified, and like John, he would be put to death in his early 30s. What this means, though, that Jesus is there to protect is that nothing can touch us except by the loving will of the Lord of the sea, and that is Jesus. And it will be to his glory if we are called to be touched by the stormy sea, and it will be to the good of his church and to the good of his kingdom if we are called upon to be touched by the stormy sea. And not only that, but it will be to our personal good. Even as it was in Jesus' own death. It says in Psalm 116, Precious to the Lord is the death of His saints. Precious to the Lord is the death of His saints. To us it often looks like death is a time where... A lot of times today, nobody seems to care. A lot of times people die today alone. They don't have any family. Tucked away maybe in some nursing facility somewhere. And even if we have loving family around us, death is something we do alone. Even if you have all your family gathered around you, you still, death is something you do alone. And yet we're told that precious, that moment is precious to the Lord. It is very personal and it is precious to the Lord for every one of his disciples. Jesus will be there to take your hand, just like he was there to take Peter's hand when Peter cried out, Lord, save me, as he began to sink into the dark waters. Jesus will later tell Peter that he's going to die a martyr's death for Jesus. Peter, this is how you're going to die. You're going to be crucified. He tells him that. So Peter had a long time to think about that. 
You know, we don't know when we're going to die, how we're going to die. Peter knew. He knew that he was going to, you know, general time frame. And he knew how he was going to die. So he had a lot of time to think about it. And I rather imagine that when that time approached, that Peter thought back on this event. That as he started to sink down, into those terrifying waters. He cried out to Jesus, Lord, save me. Jesus reached out to take his hand. He said, do not be afraid. He reached out to take his hand. And I think that's what it means when it says the Lord, precious to the Lord or the death of all his saints, each one of his saints. Think about Stephen, who died for the faith in Acts chapter 7. As he stood before the Sanhedrin, and as they became angrier and angrier and were about to rush upon him like a maniacal mob and take him out and stone him, he looks up and he says, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is what it means that the death of each saint is precious in the sight of the Lord. So Jesus teaches these three things, these three ways He is with His disciples always, to pray for them, to provide for them, and to protect them, to deliver them. As we think about application, we need to ask the question, what is the condition of our seas today? Well, our seas are starting to get stormy. The water has been calm, really, for a long time, a couple centuries for the most part. But the seas are starting to get up. Hostility toward Christians is growing, and it is approved hostility. It may be tacitly approved. It may be so-called benignly approved, but people know that Christians are the one group you can go after, and you're safe. You're safe. Approved hostility is a very, very dangerous thing. Cultures apart from God, cultures apart from the gospel and the knowledge of God, as you look at the whole history of pagan cultures, there's something common to every one of these societies and these cultures, and that is this. They need a scapegoat. They need a scapegoat people. They need someone to blame evil on, the evils of the society, and they need someone's blood to spill as a sacrifice. And as with Nero in the first century, it is clear who the modern scapegoat is in our culture, and that is Christians. You remember Nero, there's some more stormy seas for you, crazy, crazy guy. How does a crazy guy like Nero come to be the most powerful man in the world? How does it happen? This guy is completely nuts. He is completely insane. You know, it's believed that he started the great fire of Rome. Nero needed a scapegoat. He needed a political scapegoat. And who did he turn to? The Christians. And so the first persecution of the Christians by the Roman Empire began. 
Now, in our day, this kind of same spirit has begun. Christians have constantly been labeled as haters in our society. And the teachings of God's word are labeled as hate. And so rage toward Christians and Christ's words is increasingly expressed, and it is tacitly, if not expressly, approved. Now you remember Lot, when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. It was hardly Lot's finest hour, offering his daughters as rape victim in the place of the two men who were really angels. Like I said, Lot was hardly being heroic. Don't rape these two men. Take my daughters. It's hardly being heroic. Lot did all the right things. He was careful not to be preachy. He was careful not to mention God's word. He was careful to give a neutral, secular reason for not raping these men. Hospitality. These, you know, ancient, these men are under my roof. A nice, neutral, non-threatening, secular reason. But even that was enough to send the townsmen into a rage. This outsider has moved here among us, and now he's judging us. Now he's lifting himself up, and he's our judge. We're going to deal even worse with you, Lot, is what they tell him. Lot's light, as dim, and it was dim, as it was, was too much for these men. And we see the rage. Like the Sanhedrin with Stephen, as he testified to the faith before them. Now these are the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. These are religious men. They are sophisticated men. They are educated men. But as Jesus, as Stephen testifies about Jesus, their reaction is not to advance some argument against him. They cry out with a loud voice. In other words, they shout him down. They stop their ears and they run upon him with one accord. They come upon him like a pack of wolves. They cast him out of the city and they stone him. Things grow until they get to this point where there is no discourse, there is no debate, there's no conversation You come to the point where a culture has been so well catechized that as soon as they hear something different, they begin to shout down. They begin to shout down. There is no discussion. And they feel justified in their rage. And increasingly, this is the sort of dismissive attitude and resentful rage that we see in our culture toward Christians and the Christian message. And this is preparation. This is preparing the way for our so-called culture of compassion to begin to bloody its hands even more than it already has. You think about the way our society of compassion operates. It's very compassionate towards people who can be placed into demographic groups that can vote. How much compassion does our society have 
to the absolute weakest and most defenseless among us, unborn children. How much compassion do you see toward those who cannot pull a voting lever, who cannot join a special interest group, who cannot get a camera or a microphone in front of themselves to speak out? That's how much compassion our culture has. It is always measured. The soul of a person and the soul of a people is always measured by their attitude upon those who have no voice, no ability to defend themselves, and who are the greatest true victims. And this is preparing the way. All of this labeling is hate and haters. is preparing the way for one thing, murder. Now, murder has different shades and, and forms, as we know from Leviticus 16. Destroying the reputation of a person or of a people. That's a form of murder, and that has already began big time. But it can easily, ultimately lead to outright imprisonment and outright murder. I mean, this is a culture of compassion. We're not supposed to believe in murder. You see the same culture of compassion get out there. They don't want to see murderers put to death, right? Because murdering is wrong. But it's not really murder to put to death a hater, is it? I mean, they're the ones causing all the problems in our culture, right? It's those haters, those Christians. They're the haters. We don't want a society of hate, do we? I mean, those haters made us do it, right? This is the way the thinking goes. You see, the, the same kind of thinking you had with Hitler toward the Jews. You have a scapegoat people. How does Jesus use these stormy seas? Because remember, he's the one who sends us out in the boat on the stormy seas. Why is Jesus allowing this in our day? Why is he putting us in the midst of a stormy sea. Well, the same reason he did it with his disciples in this text. Jesus uses, Jesus, the Lord of the sea, uses the stormy sea to wake up his disciples to the truth. And there are two fundamental truths here. The first is we are no match for the sea. Jesus wants his disciples to understand that. You're no match for this sea because this sea doesn't care whether you live or die. And you matter nothing and you're no match and you can do nothing to control it. But the second great truth he's teaching them is that Jesus is more than a match for the sea. He is the Lord of this sea even if the sea doesn't know it. And that's the other thing we're supposed to get. How is it that we have had calm seas so long? This is what can be so distressing to Christians. We had calm seas for so long in this country. Why is that? Well, we've been fooling ourselves for a long time. Because there's two ways to get calm seas. When you're Jesus' church, when you're his disciples, one of them is you honor him as Lord and over time he blesses and he calms the sea. That's what we want. The other way to get calm seas is to barter for them. To barter 
with the powers, the dark powers of the sea, for calm seas. And the church in America has been trading away what Jesus has told us to take and keep, which is all of life under his lordship. That's what he's telling us to extend over the world in the Great Commission. And for a couple of centuries, we have been retrenching, redefining the areas of life in which we say Jesus is interested, redefining and trading away the areas of life which we say Jesus is effectively Lord. And that area has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. We're like somebody, it's like a reverse mortgage. We're taking our equity and we're trading it away in return for something else. And so it's, we have less and less and less. Now, ungodly powers are happy to make that trade. And they have given us calm seas now for many years because they're gaining ground inch by inch, day by day. They're happy to give us calm seas because the area of life we're claiming for Christ is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And the seas are starting to whip up in our day because we're running out of turf to barter with. There's not much life left. The gospel of Christ has been reduced so much. The lordship of Christ has been reduced to this little area called spiritual. There's hardly anything left but the gospel itself. They're already demanding that we trade away God's creation of sexuality and the way He has created it. Because next only to being created spiritually for a spiritual relationship with God, made in God's image, God made us sexually to be joined a man to a woman in marriage. That's the very next thing. And that's why Paul, when he describes the death spiral of humanity and turning away from God, describes it as a spiritual sexual two-step. Out of all the different cultural manifestations Paul could give, the ones he does give are all sexual. I'm talking about Romans 1. He talks about how God, man turns away from God, from monogamy, spiritual monogamy with the one true God, and then how that shows up sexually as man turns away from sexual monogamy. So you see, this is really very close. This is getting very close to the gospel because we're getting very close to the way that God created people and the fact that he names them. And we start to see that this is a rage. It's not really a sexual rage. It's a rage against the whole idea of God, the creator, who names us, who gives us our identity, and who brings us back to him and restores us to our identity as his children in Christ. It's a rage to that. There's hardly anything left but the gospel itself. And they're starting to demand that we give it up. The seas are starting to get rough. And Jesus wants from us the same thing he wants from his disciples every time he sends them out in rough seas. He wants us to wake up. He wants us to see we're no match 
for this. Yeah, we need to get that. We need to understand we can take political means and other things to try to use legitimate constitutional societal means to try to slow things down, but we need to understand that politics is no match for this force. Stand in the boat and read the Constitution to the great tidal wave that's coming upon you and see what difference it makes. Only Jesus, the Lord of the sea, is a match for this. And Jesus is using the stormy seas to bring us back to see the truth. So what does Jesus want us to do? First of all, He wants us to worship Him. We see that in verse 33. What did they do now that they put it all together, that they see this? They don't say, who can this be? They worship Him. He is God. He is the one who treads upon the sea. He is the one who can take our hand and lift us out. Secondly, Jesus wants us to confess Him. We also see that in verse 33. Worshiping Him leads to confession. Truly, you are the Son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. And then by implication, Jesus wants us to believe and trust Him. We're worshiping Him. We're confessing Him. And now, how does that work out? It's not just words with the lips. He wants us to believe Him He wants us to trust in Him. He wants us to depend upon Him. That's what real worship and confession leads to, a personal dependence on Christ, the Lord of the sea. He wants us to look to Him. But who is the Jesus we are worshiping and confessing? And this is important. He wants us to confess Him as the Lord of the sea of the stormy sea. And he wants us to do so while we are on the stormy sea. These disciples are worshiping him in the boat. They're not in some nice church facility. They are in the boat. They're still in the midst of the sea. They are worshiping Jesus and confessing him as the Lord of the sea. We see this theme throughout scripture. In First uh, Chronicle chapter 16, David's uh, great prayer there, after God has delivered him from all his enemies and set up the tabernacle of David, which is a picture of the Christian church. It's a picture of the, of the gospel going out to the nations. And you can also find the same language in Psalm 96. It's, both of it is the prayer of David. This is what David says. Say among the nations... The Lord reigns. Say, not just that the Lord reigns. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Now, the Lord reigns is not among the evangelical top ten messages to the nations. But David says it should be. Say among the nations the Lord reigns. What's the next phrase? Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field rejoice in all that is in it. In other words, this is how God brings about a different kind of roaring of the sea. Not a hostile roaring that's seeking to swallow up God's people. But a roaring out of gladness and worship to the Lord. 
Now, this is the same song, the same prayer of David, where he says just a couple of verses before, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. You see this connection between worship and confession. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Now, we love to quote the verse, O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, but we don't quote what comes next. This is the Jesus that we worship and the Jesus we confess. The one who treads upon the stormy seas, the one who is with his people always to pray for us all, to pray for us each, the one who was with us always to provide for us, to give us what we need, and the one who is always with us to protect us. This is the Jesus who sends us out on the stormy sea. This is the Jesus who treads upon the stormy sea to be with us. We can trust him. We can believe him. He wants us to worship him, confess him, and depend upon him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.